All right, Proverbs. Very beginning of the book starts with the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And it gives us a purpose statement. We've reviewed this, but it is an important and deep purpose statement. And it gives for us a sense of the greatness of what is in this book. It says to know wisdom and instruction. And you'll remember at the beginning of the series, I emphasized that word wisdom, chokmah. That it is a word that means the knowledge of what is good and how to get it. And so, knowing what's good is necessary or you do not know what the goal is and knowing how to get it is necessary or else you will fruitlessly strive for the goal. And so we need to know the goal and how to get it. And then we need to be trained up. We need to be taught how, not just in the terms of knowing the set of propositions, but we need to have an instruction, a training, a habituating of the self to do these things. And so the musar, the instruction to do it. So God gives us the information and He trains us. And He does it by the Word. And that might seem odd. How is it that the Word can give us wisdom and also give us the training? And it's because that training is a training of thought. And we will begin to seek to apply it. We will, first ineptly, and then with marginal competence, and then in some things, we'll go beyond marginal competence to excellence. And in those things that we can do excellently, we have particular gifting, and we work together as a body. We work together to accomplish great things. And so to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive instruction and success. Instruction of success. And so that skill... Haskell, that success, skill. Sometimes that word Haskell gets translated as wisdom throughout, which creates a little bit of confusion. There's Hokmah, Musar, and Haskell. We have this, here's the information, here's the training process, and then here is the skill. And so we want all three of those. If you want to be able to do things with skill, you must be willing to submit yourself to instruction, to discipline. And you must seek after wisdom. And in the seeking of wisdom, we are found here in the book of Proverbs, searching the pages. And we're told that this book helps us to receive instruction of success, of justice, of judgment, and equity. So we can make right choices, right right judgments about what is right, about what to do, and have a beautiful, ordered manifestation of that. Verse 4, to give prudence to the simple. Right, there's a cleverness, a cunning that we associate with experience, that once you've done something many times, you can quickly know which way to go. An experienced basketball player, for example, can easily juke somebody who does not know the game. You can see that in soccer. You can see that in football. Any place where somebody knows how the game is played, they can quickly do away with the naive one. And that exists in life, in all of the places of competition. This book gives cunning to the naive. And it takes the young man and makes him learned. It gives him discretion. 
to plan well. It takes the wise man, the one who knows, the one who has wisdom, who has been at it for a while, and it makes him better. It increases his learning. And a man of understanding will get wise counsel. He will learn to govern well. To understand a proverb and an enigma. Right, so there's these things that are the hard sayings, and there are these things that are the hidden things. And as you study this book, as you mull it over, as you wrestle with it, you find that it helps you to discern hard words, and it helps you to find the hidden things and make them plain in your sight. It is a book that trains you to be able to seek these things out. These are the words of the wise and the riddles. And so, this is what the book does. And we're told right after that there is a purpose with a thesis statement. The thesis statement says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The knowledge that God is who He is is necessary to be able to provide a defense of how you know. You need what God has revealed in the Holy Scriptures to have the ability to defend knowledge in order to be able to give a justification for the contents of your mind you need revelation poured out from the mind of God and so the fear of the Lord understanding who he is and that he is dangerous is an indicator that you have the beginnings of knowledge But the fool runs from this. He hates wisdom and he hates instruction. And so the book starts with a goad. And it says, are you a fool? Do you hate wisdom? Do you hate instruction? If so, then you will close this book. You will run away. You will read no further. And so you're left with the option if you get seven verses in. Are you going to close the book or will you go through it? And so when you Get from there, we have this beginning portion of the book. Remember, page, so page two, we're talking about the rest of collection one. Collection one is laid out and it is easy to follow. It doesn't quite fit with this idea of the difficult parables and the mysteries, the enigmas, the hard sayings. It doesn't seem so hard. It's not hard. Right? You, you read the beginning and you go, this seems pretty easy. I don't know what there is here that we're saying is so difficult to get. You get into chapter 1, verses 8 through 19, and there's the father saying, Come, listen to my instruction. And there's the gang that says, Be cool, come with us. We'll steal stuff and we'll share in it together. It'll be amazing. You don't need an inheritance from a father, you just need to share in the communion of the gang. And so there is this danger of the foolish companions, the immoral companions, and the danger that if you follow them and heed their call, that what will happen is you will be corrupted by a foolish loyalty. We get into chapter 1, verses 20 to 33, and you have wisdom rebuking the simple, expressing that they need to come and study. Chapter 2, we have the father warning against evil men like the gang, but there's other corrupt elements in terms of character. And there's also the danger of the unchaste woman. So young men can easily fall in with people who seem cool, but are fools. And also, 
with dangerous women, right? And so you have this ease by which the young man who's naive can be fooled and drawn into evil relationships. And so there's this encouragement to stay away from foolish men and to stay away from foolish women. And in our day, so much of what we do in terms of our time that we spend with people is spent in the digital realm. We could be listening to the songs of fools, watching the movies of fools, listening to the podcasts of fools. We can be listening to things that might fill our heads with stupid ideas and violence and the desire to socialize capital, the common purse. That's the part of the warning of the gang. We can also be listening to or watching things that appeal to the sensual and endanger us in terms of our chastity. And so men, especially young men who are driven so powerfully by the hormonal, the, the lust, the desire, all of that. You have to be careful to stay away from falling in there. And you build strong relationship with godly people. And especially with parents. And serving parents well. And there's the encouragement to early marriage as a way of building a home. We have this idea of being careful to look for godly relationship and avoiding Wicked relationships. So we get to the center of the structure. Chapter 3 through chapter 4, the Father commands that teaching be heeded. He's saying, don't run away from me. Don't run away from relationship with me. Listen to my words. Hear me, son. Care about what I have to say. And so in that call to listen, there is then another section, 5 and 6, where there's a warning to not give your affections to the unchaste woman. Because there is this great danger of following after the woman falling. And so, we go into section C, coming out from the middle of the structure, and you go into chapter 7, the father warns against the woman folly. And so we have holy desires versus unholy desires, holy alliance versus unholy alliance, and we have The warnings of the father over and over again. This is a father talking plainly to his son. And we get into B, and now we have this glorious and positive representation of the woman wisdom. In chapter 8 and chapter 31 of Proverbs, if you put them together, you have this prophetic woman, and then you have this kingly woman. And the concern for this manifestation of the virtuous woman and the manifestation of of on the other side, the unvirtuous woman. You have both of them laid out here in a very powerful and vivid way. We just read chapter 8 of Proverbs, and we hear the call of the woman wisdom. In chapter 9, wisdom invites to come to the feast, and folly invites to come to a feast that leads to doom. And so there are these invitations laid out. And what we are introduced to in this first section is easy-to-read chunks of text that explain themes. And it gives to us a rubric to understand the rest of the book. So this part is plain, and it bridges in to make it so that the simple can understand the more difficult pieces. And as we exit into the second collection, we get into a portion that is far more difficult to see structure in. We get into a portion where there are two major divisions, but these divisions are large. There's chapters 10 through 15, and then chapters 16 through the middle of 22. These two big collections. And it's hard to find the structures here. 
There are 375 Proverbs. These are called the Proverbs of Solomon. You'll remember that Solomon, when you take the name Solomon and use the common numbering system in Hebrew, that the name Solomon has a value of 375. And so when you take that and you then see that there are 375 Proverbs, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, and it's a pun. And Solomon's punning doesn't end there. He has many puns. This section is full of puns. And he draws out this idea that there are ambiguous sayings, and these ambiguous sayings are meant to be rolled around in the mind because the point of them is to train you to start to think about the ways in which you could interpret these texts. And so you begin to be trained in being cunning. It's teaching you to think about things from multiple angles. And so in that process of thinking with cunning, with multiple angles, this section is taking us from being purely simple and young to starting to become young men. So we have... The first section, Collection 1, is written for simplicity. It is written for the young. And we get into Collection 2, and it is beginning to increase the complexity. And that increase is relatively fast. So, at the bottom of page 2, and by the way, just overwhelmingly, I have read a lot of commentaries and proverbs, and you see me citing basically Bruce Waltke, like almost exclusively. His commentary on proverbs is so much better than every other commentary on Proverbs that I know of, that if you buy some other commentary on Proverbs first, before you get this one, you are wasting your time. Like You want a commentary on Proverbs? Get Bruce Waltke's. It is so much better than everybody else's. So, he lays out this major division, and you'll find this in other commentaries as well, but the first chunk of text here, chapter 10 through 15, we have a lot dealing with the wise man and money and how he talks. You have a lot of that in the very beginning. It moves into the results of being righteous or wicked. And we start to see things being laid side by side over and over again. Righteous and the wicked, righteous and the wicked, righteous and the wicked, the wise and the fool, the wise and the fool. And so what's happening is we're being trained to think about the subject of the wise man the subject of the fool, the subject of the righteous, the subject of the wicked. And as we think about these different subjects, we're attaching more and more attributes to them. This is what they do. This is what they look like. Here are the results they get. And so you're starting to build out these collections of, here's what wickedness is. And so we also begin to realize, wait a second, the wise is associated with the righteous, and the wicked is associated with the foolish. And so these results of action get connected to what people understand and what they believe. And so there's this process of putting the pieces together and drawing them into more and more complete connections. And we start to see the relationship of how people talk to what they do. And so you might get to know somebody and after a while see a lot of their actions. But what if you had a quick warning system to figure out who do I want to spend my time with? What if the way people talked helped to get you a preview of the way they behaved? And so we begin to have this idea of how to interpret the way that people talk in order to be able to predict the kinds of actions that they are likely to display. And so we're being given a set of instructions to think about how to be the companion of the wise as opposed to how to be the companion of the fool, which is so important. 
for the young man. Chapter 13 starts to talk about the benefits of right teaching and how it results in righteousness and how it gives you a good life. And so it's starting to encourage you and the youth to be able to think down the road to a delayed gratification, thinking about what kind of life do I want to lead? What kind of actions encourage that life? What kind of doctrine will help me to have those actions? In chapter 14, wisdom's connection to the way of life is laid out. And so there is this idea that your thoughts ultimately embody themselves in a life. And here's the thing that gets hinted at here as well. Institutions are the shadows of men. Institutions are the shadows of men. We build things and we die. And what we pass on as an inheritance is something where our name is either a blessed name or it is a cursed name. You can leave shattered families, weak churches, unjust states, or you can see strong families that have been built up, that are filled with treasures and wisdom. You can see churches that are well-ordered and states that have righteousness and liberty. And if you see that, the way of wisdom is the thing that is manifested by the presence of wisdom in a person's soul, and it helps to generate institutions. The way that the wise speak, the righteous speak, is manifest in chapter 14 and the beginning of 15 in terms of the gentle tongue. We begin to think about the manner of speech and how powerful speech is. And so you must control your tongue and think about the power of it so that you can speak in such a way as to manifest that power in targeted form, lest you cause too much damage or fail to leave damage where it ought to be left. There is a need for strong speech and a need for soft speech and you must decide where to put it. Chapter 15 verses 5 through 19 talks about the necessity of instruction and discipline and how without it we are left to ruin. We have to remember that we are not innocent in our birth. We are not creatures who are blank slates We are creatures who are ruins of what we were originally designed to be. And so, being shattered temples, there was a need for instruction and education to rebuild the shattered temples that we are. The end of chapter 15 talks about the consequences of a life of righteousness and wickedness. And in considering those things, provides an inducement and a motive to go through the difficulty of instruction and chastisement and pain. The second half of Collection 2, chapters 16 to middle 22, is a set of synthetic parallel proverbs. So you notice how much what I just went through is so much of this versus that, this versus that, this versus that. It's antithetical proverbs. That's what's overwhelmingly in the first part. Whereas the second part deals with this is like that, this is like that, this is like that, this is like that. So you have contrasts versus comparatives. And so the comparative section here is a bunch of comparatives collected together. Now, 
the way that humanity is under God and that those who are ruled are under magistrates is compared to the way that kings are under God. And so we have this idea of there's a chain of command. There is authority that's given in different ways. There's a way in which speech in general is similar to itself and we think about the relationship of good and bad speech. We think about old age. In the end of chapter 16, the beginning of 17, we think about old age and the types of things that come out of old age as a crown. And we think about the ways in which old age can be a glory. There are a number of verses in chapter 17 that start to think about fools. And we look at the way fools are like certain things. There are a number of humorous ones in that section. So go to Proverbs chapter 17 for a moment. Proverbs 17 verse 12. Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Think about this, the idea that if you meet a fool, he's like a bear that's been robbed of her cubs. What's the point of similarity? This is dangerous. And so, the idea here of arguing from a bear robbed of her cubs, bears are big, they're hard to kill, and when they're mad, they are very strong. And there's a great danger in trying to stop them. If they're robbed of their cubs, they're mad and looking for someone to harm. And the fool is even worse. Harder to stop. Harder to reason with. Right? This is the idea. Verse 16. Why is there in the hand of the fool the purchase price of wisdom, since he has no heart for it? Now, we have an age where people are obsessed with education but they don't care about it at all. We send hundreds of billions of dollars on an annualized basis into paying for universities that teach people essentially how to waste time and about ways in which they're oppressed. And so we spend a bunch of time encouraging idleness, frivolity, and a sense of victimhood. There's a bunch of money and time spent on it. Carousing is the extracurricular that fills the time. And so, why in the hand of a fool is there the purchase price of wisdom since he has no heart for it? Like this, our culture manifests this in spades. And the irony of it is that there's still sort of a pretense to this that everybody pretends as though it's this noble thing to go off to these institutions that are generally useless but the serious study of useful things is not pursued. Now, the things that are laid out here when we're given this sense of thinking about the fool, the comparative lines help us to begin to have a picture of the fool. Chapter 18 talks about the speech of fools into the wise, so we begin to get early detection systems again put into place. And we look at chapter 18, the end of it, through chapter 19, most of it, and we start to deal with 
wealth and wisdom and how it manifests itself in public and private use. And so you can start to see the behaviors with wealth that occur and how you can detect wisdom in people. Now, this serves two purposes. One, it helps you to figure out who to spend your time with. And the nice thing about that is people listen to you a lot more when you talk about how to judge other people than when you tell them how to judge yourself, right? But the, what's going to happen is you start to tell people, hey, here's what wisdom looks like. And they go, yeah, 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 I'm going to look for that in other people. It's going to be real good. And here's what foolishness looks like. Yeah, 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 I'm going to look for that real good in other people. And it's going to be good. And I'm going to judge everybody. It's going to be amazing. And you start to go, wait a second. And you start to look in the mirror. As you start to pile up ways of judging other people, you start to realize, wait a second, these apply to me too. And so the initial application of the fool of these wise sayings is going to be judging everybody else. But as you start to apply them to yourself, they make you stop in pain, the pain of conscience. And so in teaching the young, you sort of teach them to become impertinent. They begin to say things that are frustrating as authority. But at a certain point in time, they are pushed to examine themselves more. And so the teaching of Proverbs, when you're a teacher, one of the things you do when you teach your children, especially once they're young adults, is you generate little external consciences that will help you to see all of your faults. Because the people who are young, who are under your authority, are happy to tell you when you're contradicting your words with your actions. And it helps you to become more consistent. It's great. It's not what your intended result was. Your hope was that you'd have very obedient, very honoring children that would do what you told them and never tell you when you're contradicting it. But that's not the way God works. They will tell you when you're contradicting it. And it will push you to greater consistency. It will also, as you do that, as they see you reforming in response to their criticisms, at a certain point, they start to have less things to point out. And as they have less things to point out, they have been teaching themselves while they have been accusing you. And in accusing you and teaching themselves, their own consciences, being instructed, are brought to bear on themselves. So, we have teaching, chapter 19, teaching, chastisement, and fools. And so there is a need for the use of the rod, there's the need for discipline, there's the need for instruction, there's the need for teaching, and fools come about because of a failure to teach, and fools also continue to exist because of a failure to teach. Now, fools, when they deal with commerce, we get into chapter 20, when they deal with commerce, they will not deal wisely, they will not deal prudently, and we begin to see broken promises, failures to apply. We see ineffectiveness, whereas wisdom manifests itself with effectiveness. And so one of the interesting things, as every YouTube influencer knows, is that lots of people want to be rich. And so if you can tell people how to be rich, they will like to listen to you. And if you can get them to listen to you, then as they begin to think about how to become rich and they see the value of wisdom, they will start to consider the need for wisdom if they actually want any of those temporal goods. Chapter 20, verses 20 to 28, talks about trusting God to avenge the state. And what we see there is this idea that you cannot expect that all justice 
will occur around you without any injustice. And furthermore, when that happens, you should trust that God and the institutions of God will generally take care of it, but it doesn't always happen. And in fact, we live in a time when the state doesn't generally punish what is wicked. Generally, more and more, is regulating and punishing what is good and failing to punish what is wicked. And in fact, in many cases, calling what's wicked good. And so beyond the state, there's looking to God, trusting Him to avenge, even if not through the state, ultimately in the day of judgment. So there's a call to do justice rather than become embittered. And there's a reminder that, generally speaking, righteousness and wisdom yield a more prosperous life. And so we end out that section. Now that section, again, is a long, complex section. And the general tendency of people reading it is to not see any of that order. The general tendency is to see it as the 375 Proverbs that are sort of put into an Excel spreadsheet and sort by some random thing, and we'll figure out what that is later. That's the way it's read. But if it is a grouping of texts that are based upon themes, then we would be able to get benefit from the individual Proverbs as well as from them in context. And I... The same author who wrote Proverbs, including Collection 2, said this. So look at this from Ecclesiastes. And moreover, this is the end of Ecclesiastes. This is where he's saying good things, okay? So don't worry about it. This is the, start. This is the part that's wise. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many Proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, delightful words. And what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. And the words of scholars, and scholars like totally neuters this. Okay, scholars, scholars are like, oh, the schoolmen. No, no, no. The word there is masters of assemblies. Okay, so think about people who are in stations of authority. Think about the people now that the people who are in authority elect to rule over them. That. That's the one. Masters of assemblies. You could call this moderators. You could call this the guy who's responsible for leading the assembly. So imagine you have the elders of a local place. They elect elders to go to a next council. That council elects people to go to the next council. That people elects people to go to the next council. That happens all the way up to you get to the centralized, the Sanhedrin, the top 70, Who do they want as the master of their assembly? Who is the moderator of the highest court? Who do they elect? The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of masters of assemblies are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. Okay, So it's not the words of scholars, it's the words of masters of assemblies. And so when you think about church synods, when you think about like, the Westminster Assembly and them putting together words organized in systematic theology, that is the idea. Now, when that's done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, like we have in the book of Proverbs, you have these words that are goads, and then they are put in their good places, and they are well-driven nails. So as you study the book of Proverbs, you see individual goads and then you see, hey, there's a bunch of sharp things that are well placed together as a system to poke in all the right ways. And so that is what we're given.
Verse 12, And further, my son, be admonished by these. Does that sound at all like the book of Proverbs? Be admonished by these. Heed these. Hear these. Listen. Listen up. Of many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. That's why I like to say, when you could read the best one, why not? Right, be, read the best one on the subject. Don't, don't, don't read the third best and the fourth best. Read the best one. And if you really need to study a subject, okay, fine. You can read multiple books on the thing. You can teach other people, whatever. But if you can, read the best one. And limit how much you have to read. And you think about the scriptures and how much we're supposed to be studying the scriptures. If we give our attention there, we can go looking all over the place for other books. For the making of many books, there is no end. But what happens with the masters of assemblies and with the wise is they seek to take many words and make them few. And they try to figure out how to take those few words and order them well so as to make the process of thinking most effectual. Does that remind you of the beginning of the book of Proverbs at all in terms of the purpose statement? That it's designed with these words to help you to learn to think and to become cunning and wise and prudent to give you skill Verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. The fear of God, which we are told in Proverbs, is the beginning of knowledge. So have the knowledge of God. Keep His commandments. Do what He's commanded. So in other words, get the knowledge of God and do what God commands. That's the good life. For this is man's all. That's how you glorify God. That's how you live your purpose. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Right? And the point there is that everything becomes infinitely meaningful because it has everlasting consequences. There are no idle words. There are no inconsequential actions. Everything has maximal meaning because it will come into judgment. Now, that helps you to get a perspective on collection two, to not go into the temptation of reading it as a bunch of disconnected proverbs. And so, Bruce Waltke has this nice, short little saying. He says, Construing Solomon's memorable aphorisms as originally intended to stand on their own two feet and secondarily, to be collected as literature giving them contexts, I interpret them both ways. So as you read Proverbs, you read the individual proverb, you analyze it, you can get meaning, you can get wisdom out of it, you can get benefit from it. And when you start to see it with the Proverbs that are around it, you start to see a subject matter. You start to see a context. And it starts to give you more information. That's the idea. Page 4. Collection 3 is the 30 sayings of the wise, which takes the wisdom of Collection 2, continues to focus on sort of the young man, the man who's an adult but still relatively young, and it collapses all of that 375 Proverbs and the nine chapters of easy-to-read sections with typologies, and it gives them to you in 30 sayings. It gives you a simplified collection. Now, if you're wise, 
you can go to these 30 sayings. That's why they're called the sayings of the wise. There's 30 sayings, and they're of the wise. Okay? If you're wise, you can go there, and you can draw out that information. But just, just assume for a second that you're simple. You're going to get to those 30 sayings, and you're not going to draw all of it out. And so, you get through the first nine chapters because you're being trained out of your simplicity. You go through the second collection, and you're being given all of this training to be nimble in thought. And you get to collection three, and you've got the distillate form. It's useful after the training. And so, for those of you who are more mature in understanding these things, I would encourage you to return to the 30 sayings of the wise frequently as a way of having a expedited workout. Right? It's a lot harder to gain the wisdom than it is to maintain it. And so you come back to that. Collection 4 is even shorter, and it's a bridge into the more mature sections. You go from being the young man to being more of the leader. So collection 4 is more of the older and more of a leader. And we get into collection 5. And collection 5 is Proverbs of Solomon. And they're organized by Hezekiah's men. Hezekiah, one of the great reforming kings, takes these and in his reformation organizes them because what he's seeing is these are, these are pieces of wisdom from Solomon and there's a need to think about how to avoid seeing the court of the king fall away. Because what happened from Solomon is you had a, a wise leader and he surrounded himself with wicked advisors and wicked wives and he thought he was above it all and he thought he could maintain and he collapsed into a stew of wickedness. There is just this waste of all of the glory of his wealth and power, the peace that his father David earned by fighting war after war after war and subduing all of their neighbors, making all of them payers of tribute, putting them under his foot. David's life was a life of military campaign after military campaign. And then he became exhausted and stayed home to luxuriate. That's when he falls, stealing Bathsheba, murdering Uriah, covering it up. And a curse comes on the kingdom. And that curse manifests itself with Solomon surrounding himself with foolish advisors, including foolish wives. And so Hezekiah's men pull these proverbs together into these five chapters, and these are proverbs for the father and leader. And the goal was to make them more instruction that draws out what the wise ought to do in leadership and the battle to maintain justice in the court of the king. And it is elaborately pulled together in literary structures. Look at the bottom of page 5. Part 1, 25 through 27. Then you look at part 2, and it's chapters 28 through 29. These collections, these lists... The second part with a chiasm, with that structure going out and back. You have all of this laid out. So when we went through here, it's much easier to discern the structure here than it is in collection two with the 375 Proverbs. And so when we walked through this, I emphasized the structure a lot more because I wanted you to see how much was there. 
But chapter 25 begins with the conflict between the righteous and the wicked in the halls of power. And it gives us seven categories of corrupt man. And the idea here is don't be this guy and do not covenant yourself to work with this guy. And so we're told about the undisciplined and how they're a danger. They won't hold the flank. The fool who will get you caught into traps if you're tied together with him. The sluggard who will always disappoint you. The busybody who will make it so that you have operational security hazards as he communicates the information that ought not to be communicated. The joker who is sort of the boy who cried wolf. The slanderer who causes great destruction. And there's the danger of those people who have an implacable hatred toward you. And to not believe them when all of a sudden they become friendly. To realize that when there are intelligent, powerful people who you know hate you, if all of a sudden they become friendly, guess what? It's not for your good. And so we have these lessons of leadership to be aware, to not be naive, to be careful as you deal with the conflict for the halls of power. Chapter 27 teaches us now, for those who are our true friends, what we should do. And the last part of chapter 27 reminds you that you must maintain your own resources and make sure that you have continued incoming resources. And just because you're in power, do not allow yourself to lose out on your own income streams that you need to make sure that you can provide for your house and maintain the resources that you need to do public service. It is easy to enter public service and fail to lead your home. It is easy to enter public service and drain out your resources. Diligence in every field is what we are called to as Dominion men. And to enter power in one way but fail to maintain the power that God has granted us in a different sphere is a neglect. Part two deals with power and power as it's dealt with with the righteous and the wicked. Now, just as in section two, there were sort of comparative proverbs in the second section and antithetical in the first part, there's a dividing up here But the first part was the one that does comparative, and now we have the contrasts in the second. So, collection two had contrast, comparative. Section five has comparative and then contrast. So we have a reversal of the order. Now, when we get into this part two, there is teaching about how to rule, about the relationship of God and authority, and how this work results in gain, and the need to maintain justice, and how when you work to maintain justice, there is a glory that manifests itself in society. The splendor of men manifests itself in the streets. And we talked about how free markets manifest this. Okay, I have friends in Canada. I go to a Walmart in Canada. A couple types of yogurt. Across the border... Coming to America, why do you need this many varieties of yogurt? I didn't think I needed 13 types of vanilla yogurt, but since they're available on the market in America, maybe I should reconsider. The the 
degree to which there is stuff that's available in a free market, when you have law order, what happens is all this glory comes out. All this available utility comes out. People stop hiding their talents. They stop hiding beauty. They stop hiding the things that are given to them because they're not afraid of an unjust king coming along and snatching anything they like when it's made plain. And so the danger of a tyrannical government stealing people's things causes all of the glory, all of the beauty to be hidden. As we move out from the center, we're reminded that rulers are best judged by how they deal with the poor and humble. You can seem very equitable and fair-minded and just when interacting with people that you can get something out of. But then, reveal yourself to be quite wicked when you're dealing with people that are easy to oppress and who you don't believe you're going to get anything out of. And so kings are told here to care about the poor and the humble because that's where they can give the maximum display of seeing justice done in the land. And so that's why this is the type of training that in Christian kingdoms was often emphasized and why you will often hear statements like this, even in British common law, you will see it frequently said that the king is the fount of justice. Why is that? Monarchies don't tend toward justice compared to republics. But the idea was that even kings should recognize that if they don't give justice to the lowly, then nobody's going to respect their rights. And so in serving the lowly well, there's an expectation that people who are below them will also have to serve justice. And so there is an appeal to self-interest for kings to do that. And even wicked rulers can understand that. That if their corruption is on display, there will be no reason for their cadre of subordinates to listen and to be careful to maintain justice. So, the show of goodness. And the funny thing is, you see this all over the place in secular literature, like The Prince. The book The Prince is all about, you know, by Machiavelli, right? you hear about Machiavellianism, which is this idea of being pragmatic. Machiavelli's The Prince, here's the book in a sentence. Okay? You don't have to be good, you just need to look good. And if you're going to do bad things, do it quickly so that people will forget. And if you're going to give people good things, do it slowly, so they remember it as you drip out the reward. That's it. Mr. Prince, saved you some time. You're welcome. But he's trying to capture this idea that the appearance of goodness is necessary for a kingdom to seem legitimate and for people to give resources, time, and effort there. Now, the only way to maintain the appearance of goodness over a long period is to actually seek to be wise and righteous because secret sins cannot be hidden. God brings them to light. And so that's a part of the lesson that we receive as we hear the wisdom of God throughout the book of Proverbs. But that's the emphasis here is this need for caring for the poor and humble so that the king maintains his authority. Proverbs 29 teaches us about the law of God, proper order and rule, and the limits of power. And how we can't accomplish everything we want 
but there is a need to use power for its proper place to restrain evil. And so all of that gets laid out and dealt with in a number of sayings on the subject. And we conclude that section on the power for the court, the power to control the halls of power. And we move from middle management into thinking about the highest levels of leadership. And chapters 30 and 31 are written for the king. Now, chapter 30 is collection 6. And collection 6, about the father leader, starts with the need for humility. And so, Agur comes in and he starts to say, apart from what God has revealed, he doesn't know anything. And what he asks for is for God to keep him from luxuriating and for God to keep him from lies. And he also asks that God would keep him away from having poverty so that he would not be tempted to steal. And so this idea that God provides the daily bread and helps to provide people around him who are truth tellers and helps him to speak the truth, the recognition of the need for God to uphold him, we have two acts of humility, verses 1 to 6 about his need for revelation for knowledge, and verses 7 through 9 about his need of God to uphold him from lying and to uphold him from either depending upon himself or stealing. Part 2, we get into chapter 30, verses 10 to 31. We have seven numerical sayings. And these seven numerical sayings are broken into two major groups. The first one is about renouncing covetousness, and the other one about renouncing rebellion. And so as we think about those categories, there was the greedy generation that's covetous, the leech that says give, give, and is never satisfied. And there's a list of four things that are never satisfied. And these lists are meant to cause us to think about the great danger of ingratitude and covetousness. Now, rebellion is a type of covetousness. It comes out of a lack of contentment for station and authority. And so the overthrowing of lawful authority is the danger there. And in that section, there are a number of sayings that are meant to help us to think about avoiding rebellion. So go there. Go to chapter 30. These sayings are laid out there and they are powerful. And one of the most one of the most important ones is for those who are actually in power how to maintain their power justly. Saying 7. Look at chapter 30 verse 29. There are three things which are majestic in pace. Yes, four which are stately in walk. A lion which is mighty among beasts and does not turn away from any. A greyhound, a male goat also, and a king whose troops are with him. Now, that list, it explains the behaviors that draw power to yourself. It explains the behaviors that draw majesty to yourself, that make it so that people want to follow you, want to work with you. And so we think about these things, we are in a position as a church 
the church broadly, I don't mean just Puritan reformed, I mean the church in the United States of America is in a position of weakness. And so these are behaviors that help us to learn how to draw gravitas and power to our efforts. So what are those behaviors? One, there's the lion. And he's mighty among beasts, he's strong. And as a result, he doesn't turn away from anybody. So boldness, backed with strength, is something that draws power. The next thing, a greyhound. What are greyhounds known for? They are known for speed. Speed of action is something that draws power. It looks competent. It makes people think of you as competent. So if you're bold and fast, that looks competent. A male goat also. Male goats can move very adeptly through very rocky ground. They can also charge each other in kind of terrifying ways, but that's not the emphasis. The emphasis here is you go from the boldness of the lion to the speed of the greyhound to the adept movement of the male goat. So a competence of handling. And then, from there, you have a king whose troops are with him. So somebody in authority with troops, multiple followers. Notice the S, right? Troops, plural. So followers, plural. They're troops, right? So these are soldiers. They are competent followers. And they are with him. They're unified. And so that one sort of jams in a bunch of things all at once. There's unity and supportive subordinates who are skilled. Those things together draw power. So if you are bold and powerful, if you are speedy, if you are competent, if you start to draw men together and they follow you in a unified way and they show competence, that draws in people to work together. And so what Christ does in the church is he gathers the saints by the ministry, ordinances, and oracles, and he perfects them. He makes them more skilled. He makes them more competent. Jesus Christ is the king of kings, and he draws kings to himself. He will make them bow. They will bow to him and bring all of their treasure into his service. And so as we think about Christ's competence to gather and perfect the church, there is an assurance of victory And Christ is the eternal wisdom that taught these things to Solomon. He knows them. He is not ignorant. And so he will do these things. He does this process across time. And there's a warning when you're not ready, when you're not already in authority, to avoid unnecessarily creating problems for yourself too early. Look at verse 32. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself... Or if you've devised evil, put your hand on your mouth. For as the churning of milk produces butter, and the wringing of the nose produces blood, so the forcing of wrath produces strife. In other words, don't cause strife. Don't cause the flow of blood. Don't cause the changing of the order of things from milk to butter. You don't, don't push a rebellion. Don't exalt yourself. Seek to grow in strength peaceably and you will find that there is transformation as you apply wisdom 
and you have holy allegiances and you apply righteousness, that you will have a transformative leavening effect generally. And there's not a need to push for rebellion, for the change of order. So that's the call there. Proverbs 31 is the last collection. Collection 7. Collection 7 talks about the noble king and his noble queen. The first ten verses, the first nine verses, are about the king and avoiding the foolish use of women, the foolish use of wine, and the abuse of the poor. There is a need for justice, and there is a need to raise the voice when you are in authority for those who do not have the power to gain justice for themselves. That's why you've been given the sword. If you're a king, it's so that you can defend those who could not defend themselves. If they could defend themselves, there would be no need for kings. Kings exist to get justice for those who have not the power to prevent injustice being done to them. And so we have the beginning of Proverbs 31 about the noble king, and there is this section, this famous poem, verses 10 through 31, about the wife of valor, the virtuous woman. And this is the kind of queen that kings should seek. And so she is shown to be a hard worker who manages well the estate so that the man who is the king is able to deal well with the public duties. She does business. She is of great value. Her activities generate much economic value and they garner praise to herself. It brings honor to her from her own family and it brings honor to her in public. Her good works cannot be hidden. They bring praise to her name and thereby bring glory to God. One thing that I want to emphasize is that the book of Proverbs does not give to us an imbalanced view of life. It teaches us not to merely have a way of activity that says live the active life but don't waste your time thinking. It does not tell us to take a contemplative life hiding away from the field of activity. It teaches us to be prophets, priests, and kings. It demands of us that we should be those who are willing to think hard and deeply, willing to study much and think much, willing to build teams and to kick people out of teams who don't belong there, and to be willing to take action, to wage war, to build companies, and cause kingdoms to be ruled well and wisely. The book of Proverbs lays out for us a life of thoughtful action in holy relationships, and it gives to us an image of life that is full-orbed and missing nothing. It is exhausting to read, exhausting to enact, energy-giving to read, energy-giving to enact, and it makes it so that if you apply it, it provides for you a life that is far from boring, and also a life that at the same time is stable. Comments, questions, objections, having completed the book of Proverbs, anything to discuss there?